Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Vote 2019 edition. This is day 10 of the campaign, and a day where the focus was on gun control and health care. Oh, and more questions for the Liberal leader about blackface and his past. Coming up, the gun control debate. The latest on the blackface controversy, a call for tougher action on vaping products, and our Friday panel of journalists will weigh in on the week that was. But first, our day 10 primer. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau campaigned in Toronto today. He walked the stretch of Danforth Avenue, where last year a gunman used a semi-automatic pistol to kill two people and wound 13 others. Trudeau announced a re-elected Liberal government will ban semi-automatic assault rifles, but won't bring in a national ban on handguns, leaving those powers to municipalities. We are moving forward on an approach that is going to work to keep our communities safer. We know that banning military-style assault weapons uh, is an important step in keeping Canadians safe and strengthening the safe storage laws for legal handgun owners uh, is going to be uh, extremely important as well to prevent uh, legally purchased firearms and handguns from ending up in criminal hands. But we've also heard very clearly from a number of cities like Toronto and others who've said that they want more tools to restrict handguns uh, within their municipalities uh, and that's why we are going to work with them and work with provinces and territories uh, to give them the power to do just that. Trudeau says a Liberal government will also create a buyback program for all military-grade weapons that were legally purchased and accuse the Conservative leader of being weak on gun control. People are dying. Families are grieving. Communities are suffering. So we're going to do more and we're going to do better. Thoughts and prayers are just not going to cut it. The choice could not be clearer. Liberals are for tougher gun laws. Conservatives are for weaker gun laws. How are you doing, sir? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned today in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. He responded to the Liberal proposals on gun control, saying the focus is on the wrong people. Our plan goes after the real criminals, we're going after the illegal farms, we're standing up for honest Canadians, farmers and hunters, people who use firearms responsibly and legally. It's easy to ask law-abiding Canadians to follow more laws, it's harder to go after the criminals and the illegal farms. Conservatives are ready to do the hard work that will actually improve safety in our communities. Andrew Scheer was focused on health care today. He announced a Conservative government would invest $1.5 billion in its first term to buy MRI and CT diagnostic imaging machines for hospitals across the country to help reduce wait times. This commitment means that provinces will be able to count on stable, predictable funding to pay for their programs and deliver quality health care. The reality is that Canada's population is both growing and aging, and this presents new challenges for the health care system. But Justin Trudeau simply doesn't understand how his reckless and wasteful spending makes meeting those challenges more difficult. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned in the Windsor, Ontario area today. He welcomed the Liberal proposal to allow municipalities to bring in handgun bans, but insisted more needs to be done to address the root causes of gun violence. 
We need to make sure we invest in a brighter future for young people. We need to invest in affordable housing, make sure that there's good jobs for people, that there's ways to get educated, that there, the fear and worry of the future is replaced by, by hope and optimism. These are some of the steps we can take, but we've got to follow through. And it's not enough to just provide the, the laws that allow municipalities that choose to do so to ban handguns, but we need to move beyond that to looking at the, the, the root causes and how we can solve those as well. Jagmeet Singh was again selling the merits of his proposal for a national public pharmacare program. While the Liberals worked to change the campaign focus to gun control today, Justin Trudeau was still the target of more questions about those images of him wearing blackface. Even the U.S. president weighed in today. Well, I was hoping I wouldn't uh, be asked that question. It had to be you that asked it. You, you had to ask me that question, right, Justin? I'm surprised. And I was more surprised when I saw the number of times. And, you know, I've always had a good relationship with Justin. Uh, I just don't know what to tell you. It's, I was surprised by it, actually. My focus is on Canadians who face discrimination every day, Canadians who are racialized, uh, who live with intolerance and marginalization as uh, part of their daily experience, who I hurt. People who, uh, in many cases, considered me to be an ally, uh, who are uh, deeply hurt by the terrible choice, choices I made many years ago. Uh, I apologize deeply to them, and I will focus on continuing what I have uh, tried to do as a leader, which is always stand against racism and discrimination at home and on the world stage. And we learned today the Liberal leader has now reached out to set up a private conversation with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to apologize and to discuss ways of fighting racism. I don't want the conversation that I have with Mr. Trudeau to be used as a tool in his exoneration or to be used as a way for him to say, I've had a conversation with a racialized leader and now I've done my job. That's up to Canadians to answer whether they're satisfied. It's up to Canadians to say whether they're happy with his responses. Um, that's up to Canadians to decide. I don't want to be a part of in somehow helping him or the Liberal Party do their PR campaign to remedy this. Um, I'm, I'm open to a conversation. If Mr. Trudeau wants to have a sincere conversation, I'm open to that. The Conservative leader is sticking to his message that Justin Trudeau is applying a different standard to his own past behaviour than he does to his candidates. I believe Canadians would have been able to accept his uh, apology had he been more, uh, might have been able to accept his apology had he been open and transparent uh, the first time if he hadn't lied when he was first given the opportunity to address it. Uh, and again, I think people are uh, very concerned about the hypocrisy, uh, the fact that there is one set of rules for Justin Trudeau and one set of rules for everyone else. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, fa the fact that he won't even hold himself to the same standard that he's held other people. Oh, my brother. And that's the kind of day it's been, day 10 of the campaign. Let's turn our focus now to the debate over gun control and the measures being proposed by the Liberal Party if it wins re-election. The Liberal Party's point man on gun control is former Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair. He is the Minister for Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction and the candidate for re-election in the riding of Scarborough Southwest. Bill Blair, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Peter. Good to hear from you what, again. What is the case for banning semi-automatic rifles in this country? Why do you want to move on this? Well, quite frankly, those weapons were designed for military use. They're, they're designed for soldiers to kill enemy combatants. 
their only real purpose is, is the killing of people. And, and frankly, there's no place for them in a civil society. These are also the weapons of choice for people who've been involved in mass shootings at, at the Quebec Mosque, in Moncton, in the murder of, 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 our, of Mounties. Um, it, they're also the weapons used in Christchurch, in Sandy Hook for the killing of, of, of little kids. And, and even at Ecole Polytechnique, where women were hunted down um, for, for no other reason than they were women in, 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 in their classes. And, and so we, we believe that there is no place for these guns. There are currently almost a quarter of a million of them um, in, in private hands in Canada. And we are prepared to move those onto the prohibited list and then to work with the people that have legally bought those to make sure that, that we're going to compensate them fairly with fair market value and, and get rid those guns from our society. And I believe that that will help make us safer. Okay, I want to come to some of the points you've raised here. I mean, we're going to hear from gun uh, gun advocates or, or, or people who oppose these measures who say, that, look, some of these uh, semi-automatic rifles, they do use them for hunting. They do have a use. What, what do you say to those people? Uh, you know, we, we look at the weapon that was, it, it, what it was designed and intended to be used. The AR-15 example was, was designed for soldiers to use in a combat situation to kill enemy soldiers. Um, that, that is its design purpose, and, and frankly, it also has been used in, in horrific incidents where individuals who want to kill a lot of people quickly have used these weapons because, because of, 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 of their design and the way in which they are used. You know, we also had that situation, terrible situation in Moncton a number of years ago where an, an individual with military-designed assault rifle outgunned the RCMP and, and killed three officers and was hunting. Uh, police officers in, in a Canadian city. And, and it, I believe that there is no place for these weapons in our country. I also want to be really clear on something, Peter. There's absolutely nothing in our platform proposals that in any way restricts the legitimate, lawful, and safe activities of hunting and sports shooting in this country. You know, if someone wants to have a rifle for hunting deer or for ducks, um, th that, that is, we're not in any way impeding that or restricting that. Okay, t but, tell, but, tell me about the buyback program. How would that work? Well, simply, we have a two-year amnesty period because it will take some time to identify the owners of these guns. And when someone comes forward and says, I have one of these guns which I legally own and which I purchased for this much, we would determine its fair market value. The individual would surrender that firearm and be compensated for its value. And then he's, he would be free to, he or she would be free to use that money for whatever purpose. If they wanted to go and buy a non-prohibited firearm, that would be their choice. But it would enable us to get those quarter of a million military-designed assault-style weapons of, of, frankly, mass murder out of our society. You know, I've talked to some people and they say, these are fun to shoot. But I balance that against public safety and the risk that these weapons pose to our communities, and, and I think it's a pretty fair equation. You know, and, and I appreciate that the other side will, you know, suggest that, you know, this is somehow interfering with, with hunting rights or sports shooting rights. And quite frankly, these are not toys. They're, they're weapons designed to kill. And, and we don't think there's a place for them in our society. Okay, how, how much will it cost you to buy back these semi-automatic rifles? As I said, there's about, there's about 2,500 of these that known, known in private hands in Canada. Um, we've, we've done some research. Uh, I think they, you mean 250,000, right? 200, excuse yeah. me, 250,000, I apologize. And, and of, of those guns, you know, they, they range in price, some of them as low as $300, some of them up to several thousands. But on average, it's about $1,500 per weapon. And, and so that, a buyback of, of that magnitude would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $350 million or to, to $400 million. As well, there's some costs associated. You know, if, if you buy one 
one of these guns currently from a licensed retailer, it's often delivered either by FedEx or Canada Post. And, and so we are looking at safe ways in which those weapons can be collected in a very cost-efficient way and also to make sure that law enforcement has the resources they need to oversee that collection so that it can be done safely. Okay, you, you said today we need to disarm the criminals. Uh, how many criminals are you expecting will want to take part in your buyback program or will decide to get rid of their their banned rifles. So in other words, how will these measures disarm criminals? They don't well, follow the laws. There's, there's, let's, let's also be very clear. We've, we propose a number of very significant measures. We know that there are three ways in which criminals get access to guns. Some of them are smuggled across the border. We've made very significant new investments in CPSA and at the border, also within the RCMP and our integrated border enforcement teams to conduct the investigations and to interdict the supply of guns coming across that border. We are looking at additional resources, new technologies, new offenses and penalties to make real consequences for people who, who bring those guns illegally across the border you know, I, I recall uh, earlier this year in, in committee, a conservative saying these are only paper crimes. Nonsense. This is gun smuggling and, and, and this is gun trafficking. And so we're going to stem that flow of weapons into our country. We also know two other significant sources of, of guns getting into the hands of criminals are through theft. You know, the gun that was used in the Danforth, just as in the Danforth shooting, just as an example, was stolen from a gun retailer in Saskatchewan a few months before. It ended up on our streets, and it was used to kill two innocent kids and injure 13 other, you know, innocent c civilians. Right. And, and so we are bringing in regulations that will require, like right now, all you have to do to, to store those firearms is put them in a non-transparent locked container or a room that's locked, that's difficult to break into. That is clearly insufficient. And so the vast majority of conscientious handgun owners store them in a safer vault. And we're going to make that a requirement for all people who choose to own a handgun. We're not restricting the, pe the people's ability to own a handgun or use it in sports shooting. What we, we are doing is requiring them well, to adhere to, to new requirements of, of secure right. storage so they won't be stolen. I want to come to the handgun uh, piece in just a moment, but the, 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 your critics say, uh, this approach to gun violence is, is essentially an admission that you can't fight the criminals, so you target the legal gun owners by making the rifles illegal. Uh, is, Peter, this, Peter, is this I, an easier way to curb the violence? No, Peter, that's complete nonsense. I, I will tell you, I have been fighting gun violence and, and, and armed criminals through, for, for, for a number of decades in, in the largest city in Canada. And, and there is no one thing you can do, but I don't have any idea how conservatives can talk about reducing gun violence if they're afraid to talk about guns. And so interdicting the supply of guns that are getting into the hands of criminals is a very critical part of our strategy to keep our communities safe. But it's not all that we were doing. We are making very significant new investments in communities and kids to change the circumstances that give rise to this violence. We are actually, for the first time, and for 10 years, and I didn't get a nickel or any support out of a conservative government to deal with guns and gangs, we put $347 million okay, into law enforcement. And, and so we're doing those things, quite frankly, Conservatives who have, have taken the money and the support of, of the gun lobby are unable to talk about effective measures to keep guns out of the hands of our communities and, and persons who would, who would pose a risk to others. We're prepared to do what is necessary to keep our communities right. safe. T tell me about the measures to allow municipalities to ban handguns. First of all, it's, it, you're, you're, you're going to give them the tools to ban, them, uh, ban handguns if they want or further restrict them. Uh, a lot of people are saying, why aren't you banning handguns? Why, aren't you have, why isn't there a federal ban on handguns? You know, I, I went right across the country and I spoke to a number of very responsible handgun owners who are involved in sports shooting. Some of them internationally competitive sports shooters. They're exceptionally conscientious about the safety of their weapons and the security of their weapons. And out of respect for those individuals, we're not attempting to restrict their ability to engage in their sport. 
We just want to make sure that those weapons are stored in a secure way. And we also have recognized in our conversations with cities across the country that they have unique concerns about safety in their environment. And so we're prepared to work with cities. And if, if for example, there requires, perhaps the city would say, we appreciate that a gun should be stored in a vault or a safe, but perhaps not in our city. And perhaps the ranges should be located elsewhere as well. So the gun would not necessarily be right. and again, stored that, in their environment or used in their environment. Let's finish on That comes back to the question about, okay, how many criminals are going to care about a ban on handguns? How will that stop the shootings we're seeing on cities that, like the one you're in right now, your city in Toronto, cities across Canada, a, a, a municipal handgun ban does what to a criminal who's got a handgun who wants to use it? Handguns are far too readily available to criminals on our streets. And, and we know if we make it dip more difficult for a criminal to get their hands on a gun, we can make our communities safer. You know, the police do an enormous amount of work to try to interdict the supply of guns that are getting onto the street. We're going to help the police. I've met with them, talked with them, asked them what they need. Secure storage prevents theft. New measures to detect and deter and punish straw purchase, whether it's a legal owner purchasing a gun and then selling it illegally, are what the police need. And as well, we've, we've recognized that we needed to strengthen our, our, our work at the border. You know, for, for almost a decade, the previous government cut nearly $500 million from the CBSA and from the RCMP in the work that they did to keep our borders secure and to keep those guns out of the country. We have been restoring those resources, that capacity to maintain the security of our borders, and we're giving the police the tools that they need to do their job. We're also introducing what are sometimes referred to as red flag laws, Peter. So if you get a situation, I will tell you from four decades of policing experience, when you have a dangerous situation and you put a gun, that dangerous situation becomes deadly. And so in a situation where there's, there's an issue of domestic violence, of intimate partner violence, or where somebody's suicidal, or where somebody's online advocating violence and hatred towards a, a religious minority or the LGBT or women or anyone else, those are red flags. And we want to make sure under those circumstances, law enforcement, but also doctors, teachers, victims, have the ability to raise the red flags so that we can suspend okay. that individual's right and to, to possess and acquire firearms and remove firearms from that potentially dangerous and deadly situation. So we're, we're taking effective action. And as the Prime Minister indicated today, this isn't all we're doing. This is how we're dealing with the, the, the regulation and the restriction of firearms getting into the hands of criminals. But we'll be coming forward in the coming weeks with significant new measures to invest in communities, invest in kids, and to deal more appropriately and effectively right. with, with the gangs responsible for much of the violence in our communities. All right. Bill Blair, uh, thanks for your time tonight, and uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Thank you, Peter. Well, there are 2.2 uh, million registered gun owners in this country, and I want to get some reaction to what we've heard from uh, the Liberal Party today and uh, gun control policy. Tracy Wilson is the Vice President of Public Relations for the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, and she is with me in the studio. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in to speak with me. Thanks so having. you heard this proposal from, there's a couple of different parts to it. So why don't we start with, mm -hmm. I, I guess it's the big one, and that is the proposal that if they're re-elected, the Liberals will uh, ban all semi-automatic uh, rifles. L let's start there. What, what's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I personally, I think it's a slap in the face, not only to gun owners, but to victims of crime. I think um, they had a real opportunity here to do something that all Canadians could get behind and do something about the gang violence and the crime that we're seeing. And instead, they've chosen to do this, um, you know, to... That Why is it a slap in the face? Well, because you're talking about, you know, uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Canadians that own those rifles um, that follow all the rules, no matter how ridiculous they are, 
they cooperate with everything the government demands of us. We're not running around the streets shooting people up. We do have a rising gang violence problem, and that's been completely ignored in this. Hmm. So it's a slap in the face to everybody. The, 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 in part, I guess, the thrust of the government's announcement and the sort of reasoning for it, as stated, is that, look, uh, these are semi-automatic rifles. They cause a lot of damage in the wrong hands, and to your point. But I guess it raises the question, why does anybody except a, 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 the military or the police need a semi-automatic assault-style rifle? What's the answer to that question? Well, first of all, I think it's incumbent on the government to f define what, it, what, it, what an assault rifle really is. Traditionally, the classic definition of an assault rifle means it has the capability to also be full auto. That's been banned in Canada for decades already. Now, I have AR-15s that I sport shoot with. I also have hunting this rifles. this would cover that, right? The air, yeah, this absolutely. Is, yeah. So I also have um, hunting rifles that I hunt deer and moose with, and they are also semi-auto. So you're talking about firearms that belong to millions of Canadians who have done nothing wrong to deserve such an attack, yet there wasn't one measure discussed today that would have any effect on the violent crime we're seeing in Canada. Explain what a semi, so, so we all understand, talking the same language, semi-automatic rifle is what? So can it shoot off bursts of bullets faster than a single no. bullet? <laughs> no, no, I think that's Hollywood talk. Um, no, I, just like my hunting rifle, my, my AR-15 is restricted to five, uh, a magazine capacity of five. So you have five bullets in total. Every time you want to expel one cartridge from, from the firearm, it requires a depression of the trigger each time. So, it, you know, there's no spray and pray or, or whatever it is the criminals are doing. They may very well have those firearms, but they're also in illegal possession of them. Right. So, what's, so, are, so do hunters need these? Yeah, I yeah. hunt with semi-auto. So does everyone in my family. I've, all, I've only ever hunted with a semi-auto. And there's multiple reasons for that. Um, you know, if you if you were hunting with a with a single action um, firearm, you might not have the best shot. You might need to take a second follow up shot in order to do a humane um, a Kill. humane hunt, right? So, um, my hunting rifle that looks like something Grandpa owned operates exactly the same way my AR-15 does, which may look you know it may look scary, um, but operationally and functionally they're the exact same. So what? What will the effect of this be then? The, this, the stated purpose of this from the government today was say, look, get these off the street, get them out of the, the hands of criminals, because sometimes the criminals get, you know, get them by stealing them from lawful gun owners or from, from gun shops. So what effect do you think this will have? Will this have the desired effect of what the government is trying to get to? No, and I don't think this is intended to be a public safety measure. I think this is a political measure. Um, the, the, the fallout from this is going to be tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money going to try and confiscate legally acquired firearms from legal firearms. Well, you say confiscate, firearms. and they, they, of course, call it a buyback. They'll say, look, That's you, one, one, of the, one of the things they heard from gun owners was if you're going to do, what are you going to do? You have to, you have to buy everything back. I paid for my guns. So in some ways, they seem to be suggesting today they've called your bluff. They said, okay, you want us to buy them back? We'll buy them back. Well, I've never said such a thing because my guns aren't for sale. But um, as a taxpayer, I'd have to wonder what government would take tens of billions of taxpayer dollars to buy back. Is that all what you think it'll be? Because they haven't oh, yeah. costed it. They, they have not costed yeah, it. Yeah, I know there was um, there was a little list of eight firearms they were looking at, semi-automatic, you know, sporting arms that they were looking at. Um, if we're talking all semi-autos, you're going to be in tens of billions of dollars. 
to, to do this. And I think those resources would be better allocated towards root causes of violence, um, maybe at-risk youth initiatives or community programming. Like, this, this, is, this is crazy. Any Canadian who thinks this is a great idea hasn't really looked at what, at what is going on in the streets of our cities. What about there? They're also saying that there was a lot of people who thought, well, there was some, some discussion around them uh, putting a national ban on handguns, too. They mm -hmm. haven't done that. They're going to leave that to municipalities. They'll give municipalities the powers to decide individually who wants to ban handguns, who doesn't, who wants to further restrict them. What about that? How does that even work? I mean, there's 100,000 RPAL holders, so that's a restricted firearms license to own a handgun. In Toronto alone, there's 60,000 here in Ottawa. So what, what would that mean? Would we just move outside the city limits? I don't understand what the purpose uh, of that would be. Meanwhile, the gangs, are, are, the gangs are laughing. They're rolling around in the streets, laughing at a government that would simplify such a complicated, complex issue. What's a better way to have done it then? I mean, if, they, if they're trying to deal with gun violence, that's what the whole purpose of this mm -hmm. announcement was today, this, this promise. Uh, what should they be doing differently then? They should be targeting the people doing the, the crime. They're, there's a couple of things they could do. They could invest more in communities. I mean, we can give the police all the resources we want. I agree they need more. That's basically the only funding they've handed out. What about community at-risk youth initiatives? What about targeting these youth before they get into a life of crime? Um, there's also the problem of illegal firearms flowing across the border. We share 8,000 kilometers of invisible border with the most gun-saturated country in the world, yet there's nothing about that. Um, there, there's a multitude of measures that, that resources should be allocated for instead of chasing around duck hunters and sports shooters. It's, it's mind-boggling. But is it really like when you say duck hunters and sports shooters, like this, I guess what would change for you if you had to give up semi-automatic rifles? It would re require about $60,000 worth of my private property um, leaving my... No, but what would change in your life as a hunter? Oh, well, I, it would mean I would no longer deer hunt. I would no longer moose hunt. I wouldn't be out enjoying the, the outdoors with my daughters and my grandson. It, it would ruin a way of... Unless you use a different rifle. Sure, but it would, you know, that's not how I hunt. So it would affect my, my sport. Um, it's the only sport I, I can participate in at my age and that I'm on a level playing field. Wait a minute, we're, we, we, there's lots of stuff we can do at our ages here. <laughs> well, if I was to join a, a men's hockey league right now, I probably wouldn't be very successful. However, I can go to the range and, you know, s saddle up beside some of these big strapping lads that are at the gun range and I can outshoot them no problem. It's the most inclusive sport that has, sees no barriers for gender, for age, for physical ability, anybody can participate and do really well. So if the Liberals get re-elected and they push ahead with this policy, what will the reaction be from uh, the gun owner community or a large portion of the gun owner community? How do you respond to this measure if it, if it looks like they're headed uh, into, into making this into a law? I think when governments implement radical policies like this, we can see from the lack of success in Quebec with their, you know, something as simple as a long gun registry, which is, you know, highly opposed by gun owners. Now imagine if you were talking about going to their homes and confiscating their firearms or expecting them to turn them in. I think, I think this is a, a very radical measure um, that's going to have very little to no impact on public safety and I'm not sure how eager gun owners would be to participate. Are you saying they wouldn't follow the law if they're told? They're, they're talking about a two-year amnesty once this is in place. You have two years to turn in your 
semi-automatic rifles and we'll pay you market value for them, but you got two years to do it. And you're saying people won't do it? It's pretty complicated. I've got AR-15s that are restricted, so they're registered. And then I've also got guns that are functionally exactly the same as an AR-15 and it's non-restricted. So there's no registry for them. So they, they don't even know how many guns they're even talking about. It could be tens of millions of guns out there um, costing tens of billions of dollars in buybacks. I, I think that's, it's, it's very ambitious and I, I don't think it's going to work out very well. All right, Tracy Wilson, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. A coalition of health organizations wants more attention paid to the issue of vaping in this election campaign. In fact, it's calling for urgent action to impose the same restrictions for flavoring and advertising on vaping products as exist for tobacco products. Earlier this week, a London, Ontario teen was diagnosed with the first case of respiratory illness in this country linked to vaping. He used e-cigarettes daily and recovered after being placed on life support. There have been vaping-related deaths reported in the United States and lots of health concerns associated with it, although they're still investigating why that is. Here's what party leaders have been saying about the health concerns being raised about vaping. I can tell you that Health Canada has been engaged with this issue over many months uh, in consultations, uh, working with experts and researchers to uh, determine uh, the right path forward. We've already taken uh, a number of steps on uh, vaping and harmful tobacco use, uh, and we're always looking uh, to do more to keep Canadians safe. But our decisions will be made uh, based on evidence, based on data, and we will have more to say as Health Canada continues to do its work of keeping Canadians safe, including uh, from uh, the dangers of vaping. Our government took measures uh, to ensure that uh, tobacco products were properly regulated and uh, to, to make it um, uh, more difficult or less enticing for young children or young teens to uh, take up uh, tobacco habits. So we're going to continue to support measures that do exactly that. All our decision when it comes to, to any sort of product that's in the market should be based on evidence and should be based on the science. And if we have some science and evidence that point to a problem, then we should respond. And, and right now, that science is, is unclear. There are some concerns being raised, and I think we should be very careful to assess any sort of information that we have and make the best decision possible to protect citizens. And, and that includes uh, vaping, e-cigarettes, and anything else that might arise in terms of information that we now have that should inform our decisions. Rob Cunningham is a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Cancer Society. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in to Thanks speak Peter, with me. Good to be with you. Uh, so we've had, we've seen some questions to political leaders uh, during the election campaign, but um, not sort of any would would appear to be a, a great rush uh, to action or the need for action. Uh, what do you think of what you've heard so far from them on perhaps how seriously they they are taking this whole story around vaping? Well, there were some initial comments uh, after the last week when the Trump administration announced some action with respect to flavored uh, e-cigarettes, vaping products. We held this national news conference uh, to really uh, highlight uh, this uh, urgent situation with respect to youth vaping. And uh, we've, there's a series of measures uh, that we've recommended, and we're hoping over the course of the campaign, uh, parties will be more specific in their commitments. Okay, what do you want? So, uh, given this really big increase in youth vaping, uh, we want an interim order on the Department of Health Act, which is a mechanism for health to move quickly when you have urgent health situations. And specifically, to restrict advertising for e-cigarettes, mm -hmm. uh, similar to tobacco advertising restrictions. Right now, we can have advertising for e-cigarettes on television, uh, on social media, on billboards, uh, transit, all over the place. Youth are being exposed. 
that's contributing to the increase. With respect to flavors, uh, significant action uh, to restrict flavors in e-cigarettes. There's several thousand potential flavors right. on the Canadian market. It's contributing to youth vaping. And also to uh, have maximum nicotine levels. The European Union had a standard of 20 milligrams per milliliter in place now and for several years. In Canada, we're more than triple that, 66. And some high nicotine uh, e-cigarettes were introduced in the market a year ago, initially by Juul. Other tobacco companies and other companies had to introduce products to match that. So kids are getting addicted. And if we have control on that, if we have this package, it can make a big difference for youth vaping. Is this worse than cigarettes? No. Uh, uh, cigarettes are more harmful than, uh, than e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes are intended for adults unable to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. uh, those adults should quit completely. What's happening is that 65% of those who are vaping are also smoking at the same time. Uh, that's not supposed to be happening. And we're not supposed to have all this youth use. And we've had a situation um, where it's really increased dramatically. In Canada, in a single year, uh, youth vaping, 16 to 19 year olds, up by 74%, 2017 to 2018. And, and just in the United States, the first 2019 data, over a two year period, up 235%. So it's getting worse. And, and so, uh, like, how, how do you pinpoint that increase? How do you, and, and you're convinced that this is, this is advertising, that's, that's what's causing this big increase? There's a number of factors. Yeah. Advertising is a really important one, but also the flavors, um, also the high nicotine is getting uh, kids addicted. It's kind of looking back several decades to the tobacco situation and the, the same companies uh, very much involved, same tactics and uh, with appealing marketing and so on. We have to learn from history. Uh, we've had such progress through smoking and youth smoking. We don't want a whole new generation of kids getting addicted uh, to nicotine through cigarettes. That's what's happening. So it's not just one thing. It's a combination of things in terms of a solution, a comprehensive strategy, mm -hmm. and that's what we're recommending. Okay, so the, I mean, we look at their, Certainly more people are paying more and more attention yes. to this. We've had a number of deaths, like six or seven yes. in, in the United States, and a, and a lot of serious cases uh, of people developing lung problems because of this. We've had one uh, serious case that we know of so far in Canada and London, Ontario, uh, where that uh, teenager was on life support but is recovering now. How much do we know about the connection to this product and the actual problems we might be seeing in some of these people? So... We don't have the full answers yet uh, with respect to that. Now it's up to more than 500 cases in the United States, and there's better surveillance and monitoring. Uh, it, many of these have involved cannabis oil. Um, some, though, have been nicotine. You know, is it a contaminant? Is it an ingredient? Uh, the full answers aren't known. At one point, the average age of people involved was 19. So it's really young people, and has had a tremendous public attention, and really, I think, prompted politicians uh, uh, on both sides of the border to pay more attention to this medical authorities, New York State, Michigan State, California, have each taken executive action. And, and then you have the Trump administration with the president himself commenting that uh, it's important to take action. Right. And in fact, uh, uh, U.S. Centers for Disease Control, I think they've even activated their criminal investigation branch, I think, to see whether there's anything uh, nefarious happening along the way here with, with these products, uh, I guess. So uh, in this country, um, the decision seems to be we, we need more information from health. Can, can we wait for that? Is well, that we can't. I mean, I think we need to move uh, really quickly after the election. You know, the situation is so urgent. And then unless we take action, we're going to see just this continuing increase uh, in youth vaping. Um, if youth are not vaping at all, you know, we're not going to have this situation uh, that we're seeing in the United States. Mm -hmm. you know, we haven't seen the same amount in Canada, but we don't have the same monitoring. 
So Ontario and some other problems are starting to have better monitoring, and we'll see what, what information we get from that. I guess some people watching, will, and it occurs to me to say, okay, well, is it, and I'm not sure there's an either, is it better to have them vaping than it is to have them smoking? Because maybe if they're not vaping, they'll go back to cigarettes or start cigarettes. Well, uh, that's not really the issue that we're having now for youth. Uh, it's really the, the aggregate of nicotine use is way up. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a substitute. It's people who would never have smoked yeah. um, right. that, that are using this, you know, for the most part. So it's absolutely not what's supposed to be happening. All right, Rob Cunningham, uh, appreciate your time. Good to talk to you. Peter, thanks very much. Well, the blackface controversy swirling around Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has now become the stuff of late-night television in the United States. Now, uh, there is some big news out of Canada concerning Prime Minister and man you're a boot to be surprised by, <laughs> Justin Trudeau. A photo has emerged of Trudeau wearing brown face at a party. This is pretty bad. And I just want to say, it's not us this time! Suck it, Canada! So Time Magazine published this photo of uh, Canada's Prime Minister <laughs> in brown face. And, uh, and in response, Trudeau hopped on his magic carpet and flew straight to a press conference to apologize. In 2001, uh, when I was a teacher out in Vancouver, I attended an end-of-year gala where the theme was Arabian Nights. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume and put makeup on. It was something that uh, I didn't think was racist at the time, but now I recognize um, it was something racist to do. I've always, uh, and you'll know this, been uh, more enthusiastic uh, about costumes uh, than uh, is somehow, uh, is sometimes appropriate. Trudeau says he also wore blackface for a high school performance where he sang the Harry Belafonte song, Deo. When I was in high school, I uh, dressed up at a uh, talent show uh, and sang Deo. In, with with with, uh, with makeup on. Yeah, this is not good, man. Because you realize what happened here. Trudeau came out to apologize for one blackface, and ended up admitting to more. He's like, I did brownface for Aladdin, and I did blackface when I sang the song Deo. And now, if you'll excuse me, daylight's coming, and me one go home. <laughs> Time now for our Friday panel of press gallery reporters. Globe and Mail Parliamentary Bureau Chief Bob Fife is here and Bruce Campion-Smith, Parliamentary Reporter with the Toronto Star. Good to see you both. You. So we have late-night TV hosts uh, poking fun at, you know, Canada's Prime Minister now and the predicament he's got himself in. Donald Trump has weighed in <laughs> on all of this now, Bob, and I guess I'm wondering how this, you think, affects uh, Justin Trudeau's image that... Uh, you know, had been pretty sparkling on the world stage. How is it now? Well, I think his image has been hurt probably far more on the international stage than it has been in Canada. He, he took a big hit on the India trip when he was dressed up in all those costumes. Internationally, he was denounced and mocked and laughed at. And now this uh, wearing of the blackface is far more serious. It's not a joke. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the BBC, Sky News, Al Jazeera, New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, right. all the, the clips that users ran from the late night com comic shows uh, make him look really bad. And I think that's going to hurt his image internationally because many people saw him as, you know, he's, he's the, the next Obama in terms of the social progressive guy the that's on the international he talks stage. To on right. world stage they, right? they, the, the world kind of loved the guy, yeah. but perhaps not so much anymore. Bruce? Yeah, I, I agree. You know, certainly if, if, if the Liberals sort of survive this, win the election, 
you know, uh, he was the progressive voice in the world stage, and and people, especially you know, as we saw Mr. Trump take power, uh, the move, the, the rise of some of these right-wing populist movements, you know, he was seen as a bit of a bulwark for that. Well, I think he's he's perhaps fatally hobbled. You know, it makes it very hard for him to kind of lecture other countries or other world leaders on their issues when you know. You know, you know, the moment he starts that, they're going to, you know, cue the photo uh, of him in black. Yeah, yeah, you know, you could see it from Trump. I mean, he's seen Trudeau lecturing everybody on the world stage about um, being a progressive person and women's rights and all of this sort of stuff. And you know what? He's he's got a little thing in his eye as well, and it's, it's making him look very good. And you could you could say that with the the Trump. In, in, in the Oval Office he could, question he could, yeah. today, you know, yeah, yeah. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that question, but thank God you did. You know, yeah, no. Uh, so, we, but again today, uh, questions, Bruce. So Justin Trudeau asked again today about, you know, are there other incidents? Are there going to be other incidents? And and the answer is, it's kind of not as far as I know, right? Or that I can't recall. I, I, I can't make sense of that answer because, you know, for most people, you know, these are the kind of incidents that would be you you, you would stick in your in your mind. You would live in fear of, of, of them coming out. So how can you not? So that tells me that there might be more. And 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 who's got these images and perhaps in the timing of the release? So so this may get you know really uh, hang over his campaign. But you know we, we've seen he's now moved to the conciliation atonement. Um, and I think now it's going to be up to Canadians to kind of you know make their own judgment. You know that that uh, you know they knew that from past incidents that, that they may have had their doubts about his judgment. You know as, as Bob noted the India trip, but they may like his, his policies. So you know there's going to be a tug of war. You know between personality and policy. I think that voters are going to have to decide. You talk about the outreach. He's you know we learned today, Bob, that he's he's going to contact Jagmeet Singh and they're going to have a conversation. Uh, it's kind of watched the way the day sort of changed here. So Jagmeet Singh this morning was, yeah, his office is talking to my office and we'll, we're going to try and work something out and it's going to be a private conversation and I'm happy to have it. Uh, later in the day, Jagmeet Singh is asked about it again and it's still it's going to be a private conversation, but I'm not going to become sort of a tool for the exoneration of Justin Trudeau. And rightly so. Yeah, I mean, how's that conversation going to go? Well, I mean, look, he's, he's trying, he's afraid of what's going to happen at the debate if Mr. Singh does not shake his hand and so he's trying to do some damage control before the October 7th debate that's pretty obvious what he's trying to do and I think he's also quite concerned that because the winner this week I think we all agree was Jagmeet Singh and the way he handled uh, what the blackface incidents with Mr. Trudeau he spoke um, very heartfelt and eloquently about um, how racialized minorities feel um, and have felt for a long time when they get these kind of images and uh, uh, and I, I thought that was a shining moment for him, as an educational moment for me, and I think for many Canadians who just don't understand the feelings that uh, visible minorities feel uh, quite often about being stigmatized. And uh, so I think he was the winner on this one, and I think that Mr. Trudeau has got to be very, very worried that some of those young voters and women voters and uh, visible minority votes may go to the NDP. Now, now, now see perhaps a different champion, Bruce, in, in uh, if Mr. Singh keeps, keeps yeah, sort of... Yeah, uh, I Clearly, agree. By, by most accounts, he's kind of overperforming expectations, uh, certainly. Uh, I mean. For the second week, you know, he had a very good first, you know, sort of first half week. He's now... In, the, on the phone call, the one thing that did strike me is, why wasn't Mr. Singh 
called in the first place? Why wasn't he, you know, when yeah. they talked about the Prime Minister reaching out to Liberal candidates, community leaders, why was he not in the top ten of that phone call? Why has he still not been contacted? But back to, I think Mr. Mr. Singh's had a very strong, you know, he's kind of a very s steady, strong performance, you know, day in and day out. You know, there's still a lot of road ahead. Uh, I think Mr. You know, Mr. Shear, um, you know, I found his response, the second-day response, where he kind of hooked on the, the, you know, in his view, the deception by the prime minister to not mention that third incident in the video. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you raise the question: Well, is that now the more problematic for you than the original, than the black, than, than the black right. face? You know, and I thought he kind of lost the message. These are really chat. These, these are, uh, I mean, in, in the time we've all covered campaigns, uh, these always strike me as the, the real challenges for political leaders because they kind of come out of nowhere. And they force you to take a little time, or should, to consider your options uh, as a someone who's in a position to either attack, defer, or do something when yeah. this kind of thing happens to an opponent, right? And they're yeah. they're challenging situations. Like your your instinct is to say, "There, we got somebody on the ropes," and yet there's another option. Well, you know, look, I thought the prime minister or the liberal leader performed not very well on the night he was on the plane. He had to apologize. But yesterday, I thought he was much stronger, and um, he, he seemed to be more sincerely uh, sorry for what happened. He didn't answer still a lot of the questions. But if you're looking at, uh, and this is anecdotal, of course, but you've, you've, we've all looked at streeters, television streeters, yeah, and letters to the editor, and um, what you're hearing from people, particularly visible minorities, they seem to be willing to give him a pass on this. Now, it's early to say because we don't know uh, until we see the polls, which we probably have an idea probably Monday, uh, yeah, get a sense of, uh, of how Canadians actually feel about this. So he might have managed to escape this, but he's been damaged, and I think he's been damaged because he's no longer the authentic progressive that he claims he is. Yeah, and I guess, you, you know, um, in the context as well as have we heard everything we're going to hear about it? And if well, there are yeah, other, yeah. Yeah. If there are other images, if, right. uh, then that's a different story, Brad. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, gun control and the proposal from the Liberals today uh, to uh, ban semi-automatic rifles and give communities the um, the legislative powers to uh, to ban handguns, but they're not banning handguns federally. They left that to, to the communities. What, what do you think of this proposal, Bruce? Well, it, of course, big issue in Toronto for the other urban centres, um, uh, you know, where, where gun violence is, is a concern and there seem to be incidents nightly. The policy seemed to be a bit of a uh, you know, the, the, I'm, you know, I think there's more sort of smoke there than fire. You know, especially around handguns, which I think are responsible for the vast majority of incidents. You know, this notion that that we're going to leave that to uh, municipalities. So, in effect, you're going to have a kind of a patchwork of, of rules that you know, like in, you know, Toronto bans them, but not Mississauga, Burlington. So. You, you know how how is that workable? How is that actually going to decrease you know firearms? I think there should have been a national approach that uh, you know they may, they they take the political heat that we're going to ban these. But you know of course I think that's why they didn't. You know they don't they, they don't want they they know there's a constituency out there that the conservatives probably can seize on, and they don't want to really upset them. Yeah, how big is that constituency, Bob? I guess and is this a, could this be a defining issue in the campaign because it doesn't really show up in sort of national surveys of top priorities for people, but when it bubbles to the fore, it, it can tend to suck a lot of the oxygen. Big, in the I'm room. not sure how big of a constituency it is. Certainly uh, when you see any polls, uh, most people want handguns banned and certainly that is the case in our, our, our major cities where most of the gun violence is happening. They want gun uh, handguns banned and they want the federal government to take action on that. 
certainly from the conservative point of view, I guess in some of the rural areas they could play it up that, you know, they're going after your guns, but those are probably constituencies that are going to vote for the conservatives right. in any case. Right. Um, and, and so is it the kind of, I mean, is the, when, when people hear this, this conversation, I think, I think a lot of people immediately think of comparisons to the U.S. where it is a massive issue and politicians are deeply funded by, you know, gun lobby groups and so on. Um, is it that kind of story here, Bruce? Is it, in other words, is, can outside groups have a huge influence in, in how this campaign could turn on something like gun control? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think, Bob, it is, it is um, I don't think we have those, those, uh, those, those sharp political lines around the, this issue. We don't have a, a powerful lobby like the NRA, like they do in the States, that's you know, heavily funding, pouring money into political parties. Um, so you know, it does beg the question: Why didn't they go further? Like, like what, what, what put the brakes on the policy? Why didn't they just ban handguns? Perhaps allow exclusions for you know, uh, you know, gun enthusiasts who shoot at a club, that sort of thing. There's workarounds, but it, I'm puzzled why they didn't just you know right. go full step. Let's finish on this, and it's uh, you know, we because it's our business. We we wait for you know election campaigns, and we wait to see mm -hmm. what they're going to be like and how they're going to turn out and everything else. And, uh, I, I know I always watched for something that really sort of you know catches your imagination. Are you inspired by the campaign so far? Uh, no, I haven't been. I mean, the first week of the campaign was uh, most notable for mudslinging. Uh, the Liberals were having a field day uh, going after conservative campaign uh, over um, uh, you know instances of, of alleged racism and homophobia, uh, making people resign and demanding they resign, even when they apologize, and even when Mr. Shear said. Uh, I'm not going to force anybody to resign anymore. If they're sincere in their apology, right. that's it. That wasn't good enough until until Mr. Trudeau got caught in blackface, right. and then he's saying, well, you know, you should accept people when they apologize. You should accept that. So I think the mudslinging stuff is probably gone. Earlier this week, we started to see some policy rollouts, Mr. Shear's tax measures, right. uh, uh, some of the affordability issues, both the Liberals and the NDP, and everybody's been putting out. And I'm, I think that's really good because election campaigns are also supposed to be about policy and what each party is supposed to do for one right. another. So. As, uh, I thought that this week was was much better, um, and then of course uh, the big story hit, and and that changed the whole game. Right, and depending on how that's a long, how long how long that's with us, Bruce, we uh, we may get back to political yeah. political fo policy focus. Yeah, uh, I think if there's sort of a silver lining to to the unfortunate images involving um, Mr. Trudeau, it, it's that this may kind of dampen you know the liberal war room and and, and kind of how they were tossing out. Uh, sort of gotchas on on the conservative candidates. You know, it's hard now for them to kind of point the finger at a conservative candidate's background when their own leader is. You know, really, it's hard to do much worse. Um, so I think we're, we'll, we saw policy. You know, I think it's it's also I find it fascinating to see how the political leaders evolve. You know, through the contest. You know, Mr. Sheer, Mr. Singh's been a surprise. You know, I even think Mr. Sheer for his first contest as as leader, he's, he's been okay. steady. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what they're steady as they go. And perhaps, you know, they're hoping that Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals will just, you know, veer into the ditch. Uh, as All right. We, as well, uh, there's, what are we, day 10? <laughs> have What's going to happen next week? <laughs> <laughs> they just think last time at day 10 we only had 68 more days to go. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks, both Thanks. of you. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Vote 2019 edition. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching and stay tuned. More election coverage straight ahead.